Take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Luke. To the Gospel of Luke. Let me ask you a question. When you uh, think of the birth of Jesus, who are some of the people that immediately pop into your mind? I mean, obviously you'd think of people like Mary or, or Joseph or the wise men, the shepherds. Uh, but would it surprise you to discover that really in the story of Jesus, someone else came first? And I'm not talking about Jesus himself. I'm not talking about the angels even. But I'm, I'm talking about someone, uh, just a regular human, who was there at the time. And he became the first of a number of witnesses of the Savior. And today we're going to begin a, a Christmas, Christmas sermon series by that name, Witnesses to the Savior. Now, you might have guessed that Christmas is only two days away. And for me to begin a new sermon series, it's going to be quite awkward since uh, Christmas will be over. And so what we'll have to do is we'll have to continue this series at Christmas time next year and perhaps probably the year after that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what you call job security. So this is a series that I've wanted to do for some time now, and I'll tell you why. Everything that we know about the birth and identity of Jesus is provided by human witnesses. I mean, the infant Jesus himself provides us with no teachings. He provides us with no miracles other than the obvious miracle of his birth. And it should not surprise us that he provides us with no teachings and he himself performed no miracles because he was indeed an infant. And there, there's nothing that the infant Jesus himself does that gives us evidence of his deity other than his miraculous birth. He doesn't teach us through sermons. He doesn't give us parables that might give us a clue of his upcoming work in the years to come, or even of his entire purpose in life. Even the virgin birth itself is relayed to us through a witness of two humans, Joseph and Mary. And both of them testify on separate occasions that they encountered an angel who told them of the miraculous conception of the Savior. Mary, of course, also confirms that she had never been with any man, Joseph included. Other people in the biblical narrative said that they encountered angels that told them one thing or another. But we know of all of these spiritual encounters because of the testimony of human witnesses. And so... In this series, we're going to look at the child, Jesus, through the eyes of the witnesses that were there. Each person brings a different perspective and a unique experience with Christ. And we're going to do this in chronological order according to their appearance in the narrative and the biblical witness. And the very first human who discovered that God was getting ready to do something unique, that he was getting ready to bring his salvation to mankind, was not Mary, it was not Joseph, it wasn't the shepherds, it wasn't the magi, it was a priest by the name of Zacharias. And some of your translations say Zechariah. Um, but uh, regardless of whether... You, you pronounce it Zacharias or Zechariah. 
he is the first one to give evidence of this. And so we're going to look at his story, Luke chapter 1. And I'm going to ask that you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. In Luke chapter 1, we're going to read, as we stand, two verses. Luke 1, 67 and 68. And then we'll go back and we'll uh, see what led to these verses. In Luke chapter 1, verse 67 and 68, Scripture says, And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Heavenly Father, I pray that you show us what redemption is today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's go back to the early part of Luke chapter 1 to set up the background of Zacharias' testimony. And I want to point out a few things uh, as we read through this that might not be readily available uh, to your understanding. Beginning in verse 5, Luke chapter 1, verse 5, we'll read quite a bit of the narrative today. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So let's stop right there. Zacharias was of the division of Abijah, this part, this kind of a, a priestly division. Here's what's going on. In the temple era area of that, uh, of that day, King Herod's temple was just a magnificent structure. And we call it King Herod's temple, not because they worshiped King Herod, but because he was the guy who built the thing. And it took some 40-something years to build. And uh, just to give you an idea of the massive scope of this uh, temple structure, it's approximately, the entire temple area is approximately 1,500 feet long. Okay, you can fit five football fields uh, along this area. You could fit multiple Egyptian pyramids in the Temple Mount area. And so uh, this was a huge structure. And Zechariah served as one of the many Jewish priests in the temple in Jerusalem. How many priests would you think would serve in this temple? I'll tell you, 18,000 priests served in the temple. And so they were grouped into 24 different divisions of about 750 divisions each. And each division would serve for one week at a time all the needs of the temple era. Uh, area. I keep saying that. The temple area. And uh, so about 750 priests would serve at one time, and then uh, they would rotate through all 24 divisions, and they would have to serve a second time each year. And you might say, well, that's 48. You know, that's not, a, that's not an entire year. That's right, because during Passover, uh, during the other festivals, the big festivals, like Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, all of the priests would serve because there would be so many people that were there. And so they would divide this up, uh, divide up the service, and they would only have to serve a couple of times a year. And it's sort of like serving in a nursery uh, during worship. The more people that we have volunteer, the fewer times you have to uh, do your time. And so, um, by the way, let us know if you want to sign up for that. Regardless of that, it was Zacharias's time to serve in the temple. So he's one of about 750 priests that are serving at this particular time. In verse uh, 5, we continue. Her, his wife's name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly 
and all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord, but they had no child. And this could be seen as a curse, by the way, that they had no child, that God did not bless them with a child. Um, they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Verse 8, Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, so being chosen by lot is like winning the lottery or pulling a name out of the hat, you know, of 750 names, your name is chosen. Only one person would do it at any particular time, and his name was chosen. And so a, a priest would be very fortunate to ever have his name chosen even once in his entire lifetime. And so think about this. The, for the, for the soon-to-be father of John the Baptist to be chosen randomly for this task on this particular day, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, you might come to the conclusion that it wasn't random at all, that maybe there is a supernatural power at work directing the outcome, and of course, that's exactly what was going on. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us, in fact, there's no such thing as luck. It says that God is in charge. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so the Lord is in control here. We read in verse 10 as we continue. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. We should not overlook the fact that all of the people were in prayer at that hour. In Luke's gospel especially, Luke talks about prayer and how prayer seems to precede mighty acts of God. Whether it's all the people praying, whether it's Jesus himself praying, people, when we pray, God begins to move. And all the people were praying, and, and they were at this particular hour that God was going to visit Zacharias through an angel. Verse 11, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar, of incense. The right side is the side of favor. This is an angel that's bringing a blessing, not an angel that's bringing destruction or judgment. You talk about uh, someone who's the right-hand man. We get that type of idea even there. It's my best friend or my most loyal supporter, something like that. And so this angel is at the right side of the altar of incense. We continue in verse 12. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel. Fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. What petition? We don't have any record of Zacharias making a petition here. Did Zacharias take this one chance to go into the temple and pray that God might give him a son? Probably not. Zacharias knew he was too old, and his wife was barren. It probably wasn't that at all. The petition that Zacharias prayed, when he prayed for his son, was probably prayed years before. And he just went through his life thinking, well, God said no. I'll have to live with that. But the angel brings him some good news. After these many years, God says yes. He's heard your petition. 
Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you'll give him the name John. Verse 14. By the way, the word John means Yahweh has been gracious. The Lord has been gracious. Verse 14, we continue. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor. That's why he's the Baptist. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, while yet in his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What an incredible message Zacharias heard. And you might think, if you had never read this story before, that Zacharias' response would be, cool, awesome, I accept, thank you. That's not exactly how he responded. He doubted the angel. In fact, he wanted proof that the angel was being truthful. Verse 18, Zacharias said to the angel, how will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Verse 19. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Now, at this point, Zacharias knows exactly who Gabriel is. The angel Gabriel appeared to Daniel in Daniel chapter 8 and also in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, if you know your scriptures, is a very famous prophecy foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. And now Gabriel has revisited the earth, revisited this man, Zacharias, and come to him and he's ready to tell Zacharias a secret that nobody else on the earth knows that God is moving, and that Daniel chapter 9 prophecy is getting ready to be fulfilled. But first, a forerunner has to come before the Messiah can come. And the forerunner will be your son, Zacharias. It will be John. So Gabriel identifies himself in verse 19. We continue in verse 20. Gabriel says, And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in the proper time. One of the applications to your life today is this. If an angel from God brings a message to you, believe him or you might become mute. Verse 21, the people were waiting for Zacharias and wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized somehow, they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and he remained mute. When the days of his priestly service ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant. And she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he, looked up, when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace 
among men. Now we're going to fast forward in the text past this next section. It's a section where Jesus' own birth is announced to Mary. And Mary goes on to visit Elizabeth. But we pick Zechariah's story back up in verse 57 of Luke chapter 1. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth. And she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed His great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. Verse 59. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were getting ready to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. And he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows, His name is John. They were all astonished. And at once his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came upon all those living around them and all those, uh, all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard, kept, heard them kept them in mind saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord certainly was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. You know, when I was a child, go visit grandma's house at Christmas time. And uh, sometimes uh, she would open up a drawer in the kitchen and she kept these booklets in the drawer. And sometimes she would let me take these little stamps, S&H green stamps, and put them in this booklet. Because when you fill up this booklet, you can turn it in. Now, if you know what kind of stamps I'm talking about. It says something about your age. But we'll move on from there. Our younger people are saying, what are stamps? much less S&H stamps. S&H green stamps, you know how it worked. Grandma would go to the grocery store or some other store and uh, get her groceries, get whatever she needed, go to Sears or wherever it was. And, and uh, then you would get these S&H green stamps. And it was a reward for shopping there. And she would collect them in these booklets. And when you had enough booklets, you could turn them in and do some shopping in the S&H catalog and that catalog had all kinds of things there was china and linens and watches and games and toys and you know if you're if your grandmother passed away your great-grandmother passed away and you you're left with all this stuff in her house it probably came from snh now there's a word that we use when we talk about turning in these stamps for products it's the same word that we use when we talk about turning in coupons, or filling out a rebate form. And it's the word redeem. To redeem means that you pay a price for something. It means that there's an exchange going on. 
a trade, if you will. When the New Testament talks about God redeeming us, it means in that era that a slave had been set free. You see, in that day, probably one-third of the Roman Empire were slaves. And if someone had enough money, they could purchase a slave's freedom if the owner was willing to sell. And they could, by purchasing the freedom, they could turn that slave free. When God redeems us, it means that he's freed us from slavery to our sin. He's purchased our freedom. We were slaves to sin, but God paid a price to make us free. The price that was paid was the death of the Messiah, Jesus, on the cross. God, you see, became flesh. And we call his name Jesus. And when Jesus was at the right age, he voluntarily died on that cross. Why would someone die for me? Why would someone die for you? Why would someone 2,000 years ago who we might say from a human perspective, doesn't even know me, die for me. Because Jesus knew the price had to be paid. What, what price? The price of my sin. The price of your sin. When we sin, there's a wage, there's a price that has to be paid. And the Bible says that the wages or the price of sin is death. Jesus died on the cross so that you would not have to pay eternal death for your own sins. But not everybody experiences the freedom that Jesus offers. To experience the joy of redemption, there's something you must do. It's very simple. You must believe in Jesus the Messiah. To believe in Jesus does not simply mean that you believe he existed, but that it means that you personally trust him to save you. It means that your response to him is yes. Yes, I will follow you. Yes, I will submit to you. Yes, you you are my Lord, and I will do as you say. It means that he is your Lord and your king. He is your boss, and this is why we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's because he has redeemed us from our sins. And this is why Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of Jesus, who would set the stage for Jesus, was so overjoyed because he knew something that hardly anybody else on the face of the earth knew that God was at work to save sinners, that God was redeeming his people. Verse 69, Zacharias continues. He says, And God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, 
his servant. What, what does that mean, a horn of salvation? An animal's strength in that day was seen as from the size of his horn. And so a very strong animal, like a rhinoceros, has an incredible horn. The elephants have incredible horns. And so uh, those are very strong animals. And so when it talks about a horn of salvation, it means that God's salvation is very strong. Why? Because Jesus is strong. Jesus has enough strength to keep you out of hell. Zacharias continues to talk about the Messiah who was to come in the following verses. In verse 70, he says, He, sp he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zacharias is actually prophesying about the Messiah. And his wife is not giving birth to the Messiah, but only John the Baptist. But in those verses, verses 68 through 75, he's prophesying about Jesus who had not yet been born. And now in verse 76, he turns his attention to his own child, John the Baptist. And he says, and you, child, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Verse 80, Luke simply says, And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I trust that today you have a story to tell about the Savior. Zacharias had an incredible story to tell. One that will probably never happen to any of us. To be visited by one of the few named angels in all of Scripture, Gabriel. Certainly your story with Jesus is not anything like that. Neither is mine. But your story with Jesus is no less miraculous. Because your story, if you know the Lord, is one where Jesus has taken a sinner, someone who's dead in sin, and has given them life. He's given you life. He's forgiven you of all of your sins. And you might say, well, preacher, you don't know. You don't know today how bad I've sinned against God. You don't know the things I've done. No, I guess I don't. I do know this, it doesn't matter. God's grace is greater than your sin. Period. But you've got to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus can save you. And if you do, He will. He will save you today. If you don't have a story of you and the Savior. You need to start working on that story today.
How do you do that? Just believe. Believe in Jesus. Trust Him to save you. And He's going to begin an incredible journey with you for the rest of your life that you'll, you'll be so grateful that you began by trusting Him.